This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraus. Thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Kate Asher. I'm the Milstein Professor of Urban Development at Columbia GSAP, and I'm here today with Mark Norman. Mark is the founder of Ideas in Action and an Associate Professor of Practice at the University of Michigan's Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning. Teaching courses in real estate, finance, and economic development, he also advises municipal, private, and nonprofit clients on housing and development. Mark, thank you very much for coming to speak with me. Thank you. Being a real estate professor myself, I thought I might start with a sort of land question. Um, And in looking through a lot of your work, you talk about sort of seven key components that might allow us to find a new way forward in thinking about development and housing in in specific. Um, And the one that grabbed me was a comment you had made about leveraging land and how you can design all of the buildings that you want to design in different ways to make them more affordable, but at the end of the day, it comes back to land and land costs. So I thought maybe we could just talk about that for a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think especially in uh, schools that have architecture and urban planning, you hear a lot of innovation in design and materials, and you hear a lot about typologies. But when I think about how cross-laminated timber, about micro-units or anything else, actually changes our underlying systems, it it comes back to the question of land. And I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but just in looking at the data in places like New York, Miami, San Francisco, land can be upwards of 50% or more of the cost. Um, So for me, that really is the crucial piece. If you want to layer on the innovation, you have to start with the land because that's going to be, in many cities, your biggest cost. It's really interesting. And New York is definitely one of those cities where um, it is very often the hurdle that you need to get past. Um, Thinking about New York City, one of the things that I um, noticed in your writings was the idea of, quote-unquote, reimagining public housing. Um, And of course, you know New York, and you know that we have struggled for quite some time to, um, I don't know about reimagine, but certainly improve and expand public housing. And of course, New York was really the the first city to develop a a real inventory of public housing way back in the early 20th century. We have, from time to time, tried to reimagine it, and we've been really unsuccessful. Um, We've been unsuccessful in maintaining it. We've also been unsuccessful in expanding it. And I wonder what your thoughts are about how you um, might approach an expansion of public housing in a place like New York, or or maybe you can tell us what we're doing wrong. Um, I, I don't think we're doing anything wrong, but I do think it's an incredibly tough issue, and also an issue beyond the housing itself because the underlying system that built it is pretty much gone. And so the mechanisms we have for reimagining it now are more in a sort of neoliberal model where we need a private developer or private capital to leverage the asset and create either money for renovation or new construction on those sites. And the differential in incomes is so large. And the underlying public housing was meant to be permanently affordable. 
in most of our new public housing programs are time limited. Um, and that's for all sorts of reasons, um, developer appetite, um, the need for renovation, which I think we now realize that wasn't part of the equation when it was initially built, um, that it would have to be renovated or even rebuilt someday. And so the money was not there for that. So I think part of it is being smart that we have to not only think about the housing, but also its longevity and its operations. And we're doing that in a way we didn't before, which is more complicated and costs more money. But also, if we can't guarantee permanent affordability, of course that's gonna scare people that are in it now because that time limit or like puts a, puts a limit on sort of the housing. And we know that we're in a city where housing values increase and people take that increased value and it typically doesn't trickle down, uh, to use a phrase, um, to the people currently in the housing. So I think it's just going to have to be a multifaceted uh, development and finance strategy, but also a community engagement strategy to help people understand and craft new ways of a sort of shared prosperity. Right. I mean, one of the questions I have, and you may not know, the answer to this is there's been pushback, I think, from some folks who are in public housing about expanding the volume of public housing at some of those sites that for people who are proponents of density would say are not very dense. There's a lot of open space. There's parking. And, um, you know, in some sense, that towers in the park model is, you know, yesterday's model. Um, but they don't necessarily want to see more density. They don't necessarily want to see a street wall. And so I think there's something about maybe the rights of those people or the preferences of those people living in it that also makes it extremely complicated on, on the ground, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think also we expect, right, I, I'm guilty of this. I look at those sites and I say, look at the added density we can get here. Um, but we don't say that in Park Slope so much, um, right? That was downzoned. Um, and so I think if you're going to um, be committed to equitable development, um, that maybe the redevelopment or reimagining of public housing has to be part of a larger strategy where um, sort of a broad swath of people from a range of incomes have their lives changed in ways that might overall make the city a better place. And I wonder if we have the political will um, to make those sacrifices in places like Park Slope that we consider precious and historic and many people don't want to change um, and acknowledge that maybe people in public housing that have, you know, while towers in the park, light and air and family ties and everything else might not want their communities to change. So it's, um, it's not an easy question. No, it's not. And, and when you look at other cities, I've spent a decade in London, and you look at how social housing is spread out throughout communities in London across wealthy and poor communities, you think, well, how did we decide to do it this way, where we sort of ghettoize it onto certain sites? And it doesn't have to be that way. Somebody in the 20th century chose you know, that plan, expedience, I'm sure, um, you know, came into play. Um, but it is worth thinking about different ways because this is not the way it is globally. Yeah. Well, actually, I, it makes me think about some of your work because when I talk to my students about 
public housing in New York City, public housing in particular, we look at the map and see it lining the waterfront and looking at it being built in an era where the kind of stevedore, longshoreman uh, industries were in decline. And so it seemed like it was sort of the path of least resistance. It was the available land, but maybe not the, the best land and also segregated from other uses. And so I, I, I do wonder, right, if we acknowledge that sort of like initial placement and how infrastructure, you know, was a determinant of it, how um, we think about you know, reimagining it today. Right, right. Really interesting question. Um, I want to move from um, the building to the street, as it were, to think a little bit about streets. I'm um, particularly very interested in transportation um, and spend a lot of time thinking about cars and um, traffic in particular because I work in lower Manhattan, which is really ready to be reinvented and um, the streets are a problem because they're so narrow. But I was very interested in your work and particularly the graphic that showed if you didn't have all these cars parked on the street, how many um, people you could get into housing in that area. And I, I, I wondered what, what you sense is the obstacle to really thinking about all of this street real estate that is occupied by cars. And, and by cars, I mean parking, because certainly in this city, people feel they have a right to, to park. Sometimes they feel they have a right to park free. Um, and I'm not sure that we know either where technology is going to take us in terms of the car or where politics is going to take us in terms of mass transit and transit funding. So I'm interested in how you think the future of that um, street real estate battle is going to play out. Yeah, that's it's not going to be um, a clear-cut battle, I think. Um, there's a map... In, the, in that article, uh, and it's from San Francisco, but it, it's, it applies to New York as well, where I look at a street parking spot um, that costs about $1.75 an hour um, next to a parcel that sells for $1,000 a square foot. And so I think part of it is also just that acknowledgement that land, if, we, if land is just land and we can do anything we want with it and we value it, then we probably should stop undervaluing our streets. Um, and whether that's for a myriad of uses, I mean, 14th Street, I think, is one, you know, maybe move towards uh, reclaiming the street for, let's say, the 50 people on the bus rather than the one person in the car. Um, but we know how hard fought that was. And all the evidence, all the data in the world didn't change the complaints and the lawsuits. It was actually implementing it and seeing that the change wasn't as dire and actually was, was positive. And so I'm not sure if we can just use our data to solve this problem. I think we actually have to implement and people have to get used to it. And that's going to be a very tough, tough battle. Right. I mean, I'm assuming we'll see some changes, but I'm curious what you think when we implement congestion pricing here, which, as you know, is something that should have been implemented a decade ago um, and politics intervened. But I think that, you know, in my view, is probably a move in the right direction. I don't think it solves everything, but it starts at least putting a cap on, you know, how many of these vehicles are running around. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that people will bristle at the notion of congestion pricing, but I think um, part of their concern is, I'm going to say misplaced, because what, what that really is about, in my mind, is shifting behavior. And so it's not that all the people that drive now are going to pay a fee to enter Manhattan. It's that they'll find different ways, different times, different modes, um, which will then price the cost of the actual infrastructure and the actual pollution and all those other things that we don't price now um, will actually have a price. And all of a sudden, the price of a subway um, becomes... Uh, a reasonable cost um, and a reasonable alternative, especially if that money is is dedicated to better transit systems. Right, right. Um, okay, I could talk about transit for a very long time and transportation, but I won't. Um, there is one other thing in your um, some of your um, list of how to think about the world differently as a way to start being able to develop more affordable housing and a variety of other things. I don't know what it means, so I was hoping you could explain it to me. It was very appealing. It was, um, quote unquote, rethinking home life. And I am I feel like I'm ready to rethink my home life. I just don't know how to do it in a way that is productive in a societal sense. So I'm hoping you can tell me. Um, that was actually, uh, it was, it was a sort of twofold notion. One was I think what we in planning and development are talking about a lot, which is that the 20th century models for sort of locking in certain housing typologies and zoning um, precluded some of the ways housing was affordable, whether that be the rooming house, the SRO, the duplex. Um, there, there is somebody that has a blog called My Illegal Neighborhood where he just walks around and points out all of the buildings that can't be built now, um, but that are in his neighborhood. And, um, and so I think I'm heartened because I see places thinking about that more. Um, Nebraska, there's a bill to um, allow multifamily buildings in every single family neighborhood in the state if the population is over 5,000 people. Virginia, state bill, Oregon. Um, as we know, Minneapolis um, allow, now allows up to triplexes in single-family neighborhoods. So I think slowly we're getting better. I think also uh, what's been really interesting is the innovation is coming from places that you wouldn't think it would come from. Um, like, but we have an affordable housing crisis in Nebraska and Oklahoma, and they're now thinking innovatively, not just on the city level where we think about um, sort of incubators of innovation, but on the state level of, of how we're going to solve this, this problem. It's so interesting because when zoning was first brought in here, it was in part you know, a way to rationalize all these uses against one another and to clean up places, and everybody was scared of contamination by some other use and by buildings that are too big. And I, I think what I hear you saying is that we need to think differently about those tools. And it's nice that zoning can tell us what we can build somewhere, but maybe we need to respect new typologies and think about building different types of structures in different places that can actually accommodate more people at a cost that's more affordable. Correct. And, you know, I think we, our zoning actually, 
lets us build bigger now, even in single family, but they're just bigger single family. So who is it actually benefiting? And is it actually trying, is it actually solving a problem or just creating wealth for people that got wealthy from the zoning that was enacted? And so I think um, just rethink, right, still making sure light, air, safety are primary, but um, you don't need necessarily to highly regulate. For example, right, the making room um, exhibition, I think, highlighted, right, like unaffiliated adults, um, you know, in New York City um, couldn't live, you know, together. Um, that was on the books. You know, some of that, right, we, have, we could talk about sort of like, you know, Im- immigrant panic, you know, racial, um, you know, issues that, that also play into some of that zoning from, from those times. It's so interesting because when you look at, you know, New York City and the fabric of New York City, I live in Harlem now, and the brownstone that we restored um, was, of course, at some point an SRO, and so we still have the peepholes on each of the on each of the doors, and we kept them because it's a sort of part of the patent of history. But of course, prior to that, this was so funny. When we moved in, um, my father, who's still alive, came down and said, I, "I think I've been here before." And it turns out that my grandparents lived literally around the corner. Sorry, my great grandparents lived around the corner prior to SRO time when that particular neighborhood was Jewish Harlem you know, way back whenever it was, 1900. And so what always interests me is the way that neighborhoods change and to um, keep something static just because we think this is how it should be, it doesn't really reflect, I think, how cities work and how cities need to evolve. Um, And one of the questions on that note, one of the things I've noticed, you've mentioned that you've done a lot of work in upstate New York, and I have too, and I've noticed that in a lot of these towns, particularly along the Mohawk River, out to, to Syracuse and other places, there's very little multifamily. This idea of single-family living seems to be, you know, what's there, but, but the young population is leaving in droves, and you think, well, it's not surprising. There isn't even the sort of multifamily stock to let them have an apartment and rent an apartment, and I don't know, you've done work in upstate New York, and I wonder if you've noticed the same thing. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, just to use Syracuse as an example, what was fascinating to me was it's affordable. You could buy a house for anywhere, and not a dilapidated house, a, a pretty great house for anywhere from sixty dollars to $150,000. You go downtown where... Buildings had been renovated either for, you know, rentals or condos, and you're paying rates that are downtown rates. The highest housing values were downtown in these units that had been converted, um, which was about demand. It was that that city was not creating the kinds of housing in the kinds of numbers um, for a population that wasn't a nuclear family. And so, you know, and I found this, you know, now being in Michigan, Indianapolis, Nashville, um, you know, Wisconsin, cities in Wisconsin all have the most expensive housing downtown because it's limited and they spent 40 years not building it. 
Um, and so, it, yeah, it definitely shows me that there's a demand throughout the country for something that's a little more urban. It doesn't have to have a yard. It doesn't have to, um, even in many cases, just because of changing family dynamics, be in a great school district. It's about walkability. It's about access. It's about, um, you know, um, amenities. And so I think we need, we need more of that housing. Fascinating. Um, and I, one last question that I, I wanted to just think about. Um, we don't have that many great examples of maybe the type of um, sort of projects that um, one can hold out as a, a template here, but I'd love to know if you, when you think about New York and you know New York, are there projects here that you think um, really do represent some of this way forward or pieces of the way forward in terms of um, some of the things you've talked about? Hmm. I'm trying to think of a particular, you know, this is a good question to ask um, at a school of architecture, planning, and preservation, um, because I wonder if I should answer the question in terms of design or in terms of finance or in terms of a kind of policy shift. And so I, I could answer it three ways, right. but, um, but I think there, I like the fact that there's experimentation. And so I don't know that I would uh, say that one project does it all, but I was really happy to see the city's modular RFP um, and really exciting to see what comes out of that. I thought um, the RFP for micro units was an interesting way of um, letting something that wasn't um, legal, so to speak, on, you know, on the books uh, be built as a demonstration. And so I hope there's more experimentation like that so that we can scale up, um, see if it works and scale up. Um, I think also just innovative finance and so rethinking um, ownership models um, is going to be really interesting. So um, Oakland, California issued a bond um, specifically to finance uh, limited equity cooperatives. And so I think we're seeing a lot of experimentation. Um, and so, it, it, yeah, it probably won't look like one perfect project, but um, I think, you know, the range of things that we'll see will, will be interesting and hopefully can scale up. It's funny, and I'll bring everything together and, and close now, but um, one of the things I teach real estate history, and one of the things in teaching about how the real estate market here and how the housing market here evolved um, that I didn't quite recognize is that the co-op movement, which we now you know, just all assume that condos and co-ops have been here forever, but the co-op movement when it first emerged was kind of a hippie thing. It was a cooperative ownership of what before that had kind of been called a tenement. Um, and it was very experimental. And, and so to your point about experimenting, I think some of these experiments probably are, um, you know, leading us down the path to the future. We're not quite sure which they are now. But when you go back in history and look at the experiment of the apartment itself, which grew out of the tenement and the French flats, when you think about the co-ops and different forms of ownership, um, they've really created the market that we know it, which, which needs to march forward. Yeah. I mean, I think we could have a whole other conversation about technology and um, sort of like what is happening in that space, right? So people talk about tokenization and the use of, you know, 
Bitcoin or blockchain and, you know, in, in lieu of leases or subscription models for housing. Um, yeah, who knows where all that's going to go? But I think um, like the cooperative, there hopefully we'll see new models. Great. Great. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.